let's start with a little nigun. Let's start with a nigun. So we can, uh, you might recognize this from Hallelujah. <clears throat> Thank you so much for being here. Let's start with a little poll. Let's start with a little poll to see what people are, are thinking about today. See who's in the room. Your Seder plans. Number one, I will be totally alone at my Pesach Seder. Number two, I will be physically alone, but on Zoom for Seder. Number three, I will be physically with a small group. Number four, I will be physically with a large group. Number five, I'm skipping Seder this year. Okay, you don't have to say it in a mad tone, but maybe that's where we are. Or lastly, I'm just not sure. It's like only Tuesday. Give me a break, you know? Okay. <laughs> so cast your vote there. Cast your vote over there. Um, we'll give you a few seconds. Let's see where everyone is at. Hi, Andrea. Just joined us. Okay, let's see the results of that poll. Let's see what people are doing for Pesach this year. 7% totally alone. I guess that's probably one person here. 29% physically alone, but on Zoom, okay? I will be with a small group, 57%. All right, we got some vaccinated folks. Uh, large group, 0%. Good, I'm glad to hear that. And skipping Seder, 0%. Also glad. No judgments, no judgments, but glad to hear nobody's <laughs> skipping. And just not sure yet, it's only Tuesday, 7%. Okay, great. If you're like me, you think about Pesach like nine months in advance. Like Pesach ends and the next day, you're like, what are we doing? You know? <laughs> but um, okay, so <laughs> it's a great to be with you all. And uh, this is a very exciting malacha. <clears throat> You know, if I was a synagogue, if I was a synagogue rabbi, I would start each sermon with, with this is the most exciting Parsha. This is the most exciting Parsha to talk about. Um, but uh, so I feel that way about the, about the Malachot as well. <clears throat> okay. The 38th Malacha is Makeba Patish. Anybody ever heard of Makeba Patish? They don't teach that in Sunday school. <laughs> Literally striking with a hammer. Striking with a hammer, which refers not only to this specific action, but also to finishing the job. Finishing a job is called makibapatish in Hebrew. In the construction of the Mishkan, the tabernacle, the final hammer blow was administered to the gold sheets to connect them to the boards. This malacha doesn't only relate to the completion of something newly created, it also applies to a repair to a broken item that makes it workable again. 
a practical a practical example would be screwing back in the temple piece the temple in the temple piece of a pair of glass So finishing a task can be rewarding. In human psychology, it can be so uplifting to feel a sense of completion. We like to commemorate such events. Think of graduations or of a seum, which is celebrating the completion of learning, the last day on a job before starting a new one, or retirement, divorce, closing the door of an old home for the first time, and even death. Some endings are simply bitter. Others are just sweet. Most commonly, they are bittersweet. By the way, I received a, uh, an email from a friend last night. I reached out, he's Japanese American, and I reached out because of the recent attack upon um, the Asian American women in Atlanta. And, um, and I reached out to him just to see how he was doing about it. And he said, please, I need, I need your help. I said, what do you need my help with? He said, I'm looking for dying people. I said, you're looking for dying people? He goes, it's my spiritual mission to make sure nobody dies alone. Nobody dies alone. And please, if you hear of anybody dying who's dying alone, uh, call me so that I can uh, I can be there because I'm now vaccinated and I want to be there. Anyway, it's just a tangential thought about this, 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 this uh, sweet man. It's interesting to note that in Jewish spirituality, we traditionally don't just recite a blessing before eating food, but also afterwards, refer referred to as the bracha achrona, the final blessing. We say thanks before eating, and then when we finish, we express gratitude once again to mark the completion of our eating. Think about those TV shows where the family says grace before meals, but you never see the dinner's done, and then they take hands again, and then say, now let's say our grace after meals, as, as Jew Jews traditionally do. This practice is connected to the first Jew and his love of welcoming strangers as a way to repair the world. This is from Bereshit Rabbah. By the way, Bereshit obviously means Genesis, and Rabbah just indicates that it's a midrash. It's a rabbinic um, interpretation of this. Said Rav Yitzchak, Avraham used to welcome wayfarers. He'd welcome strangers. When they had finished eating, he would invite them to give thanks. They would turn to him and ask him what they should say. He said, what? We don't know about this. What do you mean? What do I say after my meal? Avraham would answer, Bless the everlasting God of whose bounty we have partaken. Whereupon God said to him, my name was unknown to my creatures and you introduced me to them. I therefore regard you as being a partner with me in the creation of the world. <laughs> what, a, what an awesome source, right? Abraham loves refugees. He loves strangers. He loves immigrants. He doesn't just love them. He says, come into my tent. But then he doesn't just he doesn't just want them in his tent. He wants them to feel spiritually uplifted in his tent. And because of this, God views Abraham as a partner in not just repairing the world, a partner in creation of the world. Some tasks in life have no end. And so we break them up into segments to feel a sense of completion without, excuse me, within a never ending long-term journey. Consider the journey of marriage or the journey of parenthood or the journey of spiritual growth. These experiences never truly finish, but we celebrate their milestones by marking b'nai mitzvah or benot mitzvah, birthdays, graduations, and weddings, even often after the death of a person whose life events we mark. <clears throat> Think of the yard site. In community organizing, 
we know that we never completely win and find ourselves in a utopia. Rather, the path toward a more just and holy world is never ending. So we celebrate little wins to keep up the momentum, but never take our eyes off the grander prize. Rabbi Harold Kushner, who I don't often quote so often, but in this series I've quoted quite a bit, offers a fascinating distinction between the life of an angel and the life of a human. Ever thought about that comparison? What is the difference between a life of an angel and the life of a human? In the Bible, he writes, we often read of angels appearing to people at crucial moments of their lives to bring them a word from God. We don't have to picture them as ethereal creatures with wings and halos. They usually seem to take on human form. But one interesting thing about angels sent by God is that when they have completed their mission, they disappear, which happens to the angel who tells Shimshon's mother that she will have a special child in Judges 13. And to the angels who come to Abraham and to Lot in Genesis 19, one by one, their message delivered, they vanish. That is the difference between angels and human beings, and between human beings and less advanced forms of life. We find ample reason to go on living even when our biological mission has been completed. Nature may have de designed us to bear and raise our young and then fade away. Nature makes the rules for things like sex and childbirth, health and illness. But nature cannot comprehend such qualities as love, wisdom, or creativity. We cannot expect nature to understand our drive to see grandchildren grow up, to read or write another book, to hear symphony, follow a pennant race, or take pleasure in the emergence of a talented young actor or actress. That is why we, in the last third of our lives, <clears throat> fight back against the natural process of decay. <clears throat> it is not our greed out of greed or vanity. It is because there are things we still want to do and enjoy proudly and defiantly procl pro proclaiming that we are not yet finished living. And so as humans, we continue to affirm life even after the completion of the activities that make up our lives. Yes, in fact, I was just with a loved one talking earlier this morning who said, I, you know, I feel kind of down. I don't feel a deep sense of purpose like I did when I was working full time. And, uh, and we talked about that feeling a little bit of what it means to feel a little bit less driven, a little less ambitious, a little bit of less of a sense of purpose, and a, a type of depression that can emerge for people in such a state. And yet that's, that's profoundly and precisely what is constitutive of humanity. Precisely what makes us human is that when the natural order of calling or mission or purpose fades, that that is precisely a time when um, human actualization can flourish, when we once again redetermine a sense of purpose rather than enable the natural cycle to dictate that to us. We don't complete our tasks and then call it a day, call it a life. Rather, we set new directions, new goals, and new aspirations. An angel has only one calling, one calling, and disappears after its mission. But as humans, we continue to evolve and grow and realign with the calling of our time. But this never-ending journey can be quite exhausting. So friends, just to rehash this point one more time uh, before we get to this next Kushner, Kushner quote, that as humans, we don't have one purpose. We don't have one purpose to be a parent, to be a spouse, to be a, a stockbroker or be a doctor, right? Okay, that's one part of our life. 
right? And then we have another purpose. Angels have one purpose, and then they fade away. They're gone. But we are an evolving species. So Kushner writes, he continues, in my nearly 50 years as a clergyman, I have been at the, at the beside of many, many dying people, young and old, religious and free thinkers, successful in life and less successful. They taught me the profound truth that terminally ill people are not afraid of death. When you are very sick, when little by little your body stops being able to do the things it has always been able to do, death may be the only cure that ails you. There are three things that terrify the very ill person more than the prospect of dying. They are afraid of pain. They are afraid that people will abandon them while they are still alive, having never accomplished anything that will cause people to remember them when they are gone. For most people, the prospect of nullification, of having left no mark on the world, is more frightening than the prospect of not living forever. The real fear of dying, I am convinced, is the fear that we will leave this world with our tasks unfinished. And the best way, indeed the only way, to defeat death is to live fearlessly and purposefully. So friends, you know, every, um, every uh, day there's a new article that comes out about biggest uh, deathbed fears. And, um, and I don't see them every day. I probably see them once a year. You maybe see them more often. But I'm going to post over here the one I saw that came out today in, um, in Today, USA Today. And their argument over there, or her argument, Tenzin Kiyosaki. Oh, no, they're quoting her. But the, but the author is, is Pawlowski. The, their argument over there today is about deathbed fears. Most commonly, what we see from those articles are that people... Um, most regret not having spent their time with people they cared most about, right? That's what we most commonly see. Um, uh, but what, what they argue over here as the three regrets, regrets and, I'll, uh, and I'll, um, I, I already posted the article, article but I'll, I'll quote the three ideas from this article. Number one, I did not live my life of dreams. That's number one. Number two, I did not share my love. I did not share my love. And number three, I did not forgive. I did not forgive. So uh, you can think about whether those speak to you or not. Um, perhaps you want to write your own article about, about such a thought. But it is an interesting experiment to think to have deathbed meditations and to preempt such regrets. Of course, the greatest sages we see in the Talmud are filled with end-of-life end of regrets. And so there's no correlation between being a virtuous person or non-virtuous person and having regrets at the end of life. It's, it's a human condition to have regrets at the end of life, uh, regardless of how prepared we are. Um, okay, here we go. Let's continue here. Indeed, we may seek completion. We might want to ride out into the sunset to a standing ovation. Wouldn't that be cool? Like, we're like, okay, I, I, I fulfilled my purpose. I'm going to get on my horse, uh, a silver. I'm going to get on the high ho silver. <laughs> By the way, I just showed my kids recently that scene where Tanto, you remember where, no, not Tanto, where the Lone Ranger shoots the, shoots the cord freeing Tanto. You know, that amazing scene. And, it, and it's also great because it's like this, uh, this scene of like Native Americans being brought into, you know, American cinema uh, in a way, in, in a respectful way and showing the discrimination that emerged towards Tanto. Um, in any case, they, they just loved this. When I was a child, my father used to make me watch it like once a month. And then when we grew out of that, remember that Rudy film where Rudy, you know, the last two minutes of the Rudy film? 
my, 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 so my father used to make me watch that once a month where Rudy, you know, that where the, the whole crowd is cheering, chanting Rudy. In any case, so my kids absolutely love this, uh, this, 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 this final scene. So Silver, so imagine this. You, you feel like, oh, I've done what I, I've done what I need to do here, and you get on your, you get on your horse, and you ride into the sunset, and uh, and you get a full, you get a full standing ovation from everyone around you. Like, wouldn't that, wouldn't that be a great way to kind of close shop? But we know life is far more messy. Life is far more messy. And along with being more beautiful than something that can be tied up perfectly with a bow, to live in an open-minded, open-souled manner, we need to control our fears that hold us back so frequently. And yet there are moments so great and transitions so radical that we can taste completion. Consider the Israelites on the far side of the sea, watching their oppressors drown in the water through which they had just passed. I mean, I mean, it's hard to imagine. Today, we live with such privilege and comfort that we say, oh, like, oh, you know, they're more, why should they be celebrating the death of the, of the Egyptians, their oppressors? But listen, if you've been in slavery for 400 years and you finally and you see them chasing you and you make it to the other end of the sea and then you see them drown in the sea. You're not in a place of, uh, of privilege of saying, I, I really should feel no joy right now at, at these people dying. You're in a state of complete relief, you know, a, a, a radical completion of an era that your parents, you, you were raised in, your parents knew, your grandparents knew, your great-grandparents knew. All they knew is the life of slavery, and you see that chapter close in front of your eyes when you're on the other end of the sea. Imagine such a moment where you're like, eh, American slavery was nothing like that. American slavery ended. And then it kind of didn't end, and then it kind of was prolonged, and then um, it, it 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 wasn't completely addressed, you know, on the criminal justice front, the economic justice front, um, not to mention discrimination and civil rights, and let's keep going on and on. And so there's no completion. Uh, you know, black people in America never felt like, oh, good, that chapter's over. That chapter's over. If you're an Israelite on the other end of the sea, you're like, oh, the chapter's over. Think of the moment at Mount Sinai, hearing the words pronouncing the Ten Commandments, when these same Israelites knew that the world's moral compass would be altered forever. All of a sudden, you kind of thought killing was wrong. Adultery seemed wrong to you, right? Um, idolatry, you know, idolatry, you know, coveting, stealing. You, you had a natural morality that these were wrong. But now for the first time, the divine word emerges and says... These are the Ten Commandments. I mean, this is a world-altering moment. Consider the words of President Abraham Lincoln from his second inaugural address. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Indeed, there are some tasks that are never ending and others that we seek to complete. He saw this moment. We, we are entering a new era of America where, this, where of, of a, United, a United States Right. And yes, there is the, 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 the there is the transitioning happening of comforting and of uniting. But this is a fundamental shift in this country's tra trajectory, unlike any this country has ever known. And he's marking that transition. 
Consider how Rav Pinchas Horowitz, Horowitz wrote about our work of completing creation. Okay, sorry, this is a little bit of a long quote, but I, I, I thought it was worth it, worth it, based on how he as a Kabbalist understands tikkun olam. It is said after deep inspection that the way of giving through using one's body is more glorious and praiseworthy than giving through the pocketbook. However, just because this type of giving is more glorious, a person should not abandon the second type of giving, for truly the second type is more needed for repairing the community of humanity, the takanat kahalat, oh, kehalat min ha'enoshi, right? So, um, Oh, oh, I see. I see. This this is just a strange. It's kahilat. It's just a, it's just a, tra a strange translation. There. Sorry. The takanat kahilat minha enoshi, repairing humanity, and it's better in the eyes of God, and humanity to furnish the poor from the blessings of one's house, to supply the poor from one's own money, and to free the captives and give ransom for their lives, and not feel the loss of ransom money, to give one's bread to the hungry and to cover the naked with clothing to loan money to the poor and things like this. And the essence of fulfilling the obligation of loving one's neighbor is of this second type, even though both of them as one are good, we see in Ecclesiastes. Okay, so just a reminder what he's saying so far. He's saying, oh, how glorious to make your body of service to others. You go and you volunteer, you give hugs, you listen to people, you take care of people. But don't forget the real tikkun is through money because that's what's going to sustain people in their needs, right? Organizations, individuals. So uh, that this, uh, for fixing of the world, the takanat ha'olam, tikkun olam, for the, and for the value of joining together the human species. He, he continues. And now let us explore how many levels there are in these three kinds of doing good, through ideas, through one's body, and through property. And they are, number one, that one should help a single person. Number two, that one should do this for many. For example, if there were a town without a source of water and one dug with one's strength a well for them. And number three, that one does good for all the people in the world. For example, one used, one used one's body and one's strength to make a bridge for a road that many pass through. Or that one would hire workers and to make the bridge and pay them from one's pocket or through the power of one's intellect invent some new tool that is good for the whole world, like Noah invented plowing tools in the world. And similarly, any tools that complete the establishment of the world, and its well-being. By the way, it's really radical that such an early um, traditional source continues to use this idea of tikkun olam, which we think of as a 1960s uh, reform invention. And one who does good for the people of the world, such as one who invents a new tool that is good for the world or a good book, it is appropriate for someone who is enlightened on the subject of loving neighbors, that at the least he would buy it in order that the inventor or author would expand and strengthen his heart by means of this to invent more good tools for the world. And so for the rest of all though, those who are wise of heart, that they should strengthen themselves and strive also to invent good things and necessary tools for the improvement of the world and its completion. So this is an interesting idea that even though there is this Jewish concept of tikkun olam, the world is always broken and needing repair, there's also this idea of completion, that there are some acts that we complete. Again, our, our malacha today is um, 
completing an act, completing an act. And there is this concept of completing creation or completing an aspect of creation in addition to this idea that we live in a world that is um, um, uh, uh, inevitably um, and eternally broken and, um, and in need of repair. We learn famously in Pirkei Avot, one of my favorite, Lo alecha hamlecha ligmor, that the work is not for us to complete, yet we still cannot desist from participating. I'm sure that's a concept we've all heard before, but just to remind us of its significance, <clears throat> there are people who say, why should, they're cynics, why should I participate in responding to homelessness or protest corruption or take care of the poor? Inevitably, these problems will always be here. And so it's just the reality, like enjoy yourself. Those problems aren't going away, right? I shouldn't get involved. I, I can't finish it. And other people who bend themselves out of shape tirelessly, um, feeling guilt that they can't resolve the world's problems, right? And this is the middle piece. That yes, it is not upon any one of us to solve the problems of the world, not any of us, not even the most powerful people. Um, and yet, just because it's not on us to finish it doesn't mean we can desist from participating in that work as well. This incredibly powerful directive reminds us that none of us completes our own missions and yet our work is still meaningful, even without completion. Consider how the creator of the world allowed each day to pass in the days of creation without having finished creation, right? Think about that in the creation story. You might have said, gee, it's an all-powerful being. Create the world in one act. Boom. One act, one word, the world is created. But instead, day one, and then there's a pause, and day two. And God goes to sleep, so to speak, without completing creation. So too, we can kind of go to sleep at night, understanding that we didn't finish our work. We didn't finish our work. And even after a week's worth of creativity, the apparent completion of creation was followed by a divine command to humankind to participate in the continued completion of the task, as it were, by populating the earth and mastering it. So too, when we go to sleep at night, we can find solidarity with the divine in knowing that the work is not done, but that we did did what we could do that day. You know, I'll tell you a story about my daughter. You know, since this is a, a, a group of friends here, I feel like I can share these personal stories. Of course, it's also live on Facebook, but we'll, but we'll just ignore that fact. <laughs> you know, maybe nobody's over there. But with the group of friends, I'll tell you uh, um, something my daughter said falling asleep uh, the other night. I think it was two nights ago. So it was actually very interesting because we had in our science and Judaism series that we've been doing at VBM, we had an astrophysicist speak a few days ago. And, uh, and I asked her a question because I know nothing about this stuff. I asked her, um, I said, um, in, 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 in Kabbalah, we talk about the Ein Sof. We talk about the, um, the, uh, the, 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 uh, that God, God is not defined, is not limited by space. There, there, there was an, in, there was an infinite, not, not only eternal and infinite, but uh, a, a never end to, to, to the space that exists. So I said, how do we think about that in terms of physical space today? Is the understanding that beyond galaxies, like space has no end, or is there an end to space? You know, and so that was my question, and it's, it's, you know, it's no better than a seventh grade question. I mean, it's, I just don't, don't know anything about it. And literally, I don't know if it was that night or the next night. 
we're falling asleep. And my four-year-old said, she said, uh, she said, Abba, she said, what, what do we call the space after outer space? And I said, I have the same question. I have no idea. I have no idea. And then I said, I asked, and then I asked her a question. And I said, I said, I think we call that God. I think we call the space beyond space God. And then I said, what do you think God feels there? And she said something amazing. She said, you know, not something sweet and happy, but something still amazing. She said, she said, um, uh, I, what do you think? I said, what do you think God is feeling there? And she said, I think God is sleeping and crying in his sleep. She refers to God as, as him. My son refers to God as her, but um, and that, that's a different conversation. And anyways, I think I think he is crying in his sleep. Now, um, there's a lot to say about that answer, but she cries in her sleep, you know, next to me, um, fairly regularly, and um, and this is a reminder of of projection that that not only are we created in the image of God, but we construct God in our own images, right? That she's about to be afraid to fall asleep and thus knows she may cry in her sleep and thus imagines a God who also cries in his sleep. Um, so I thought that was, uh, uh, anyways, there's a lot more to say about that. So, um, so when we go to sleep at night, we can feel solidarity with the divine and knowing that the work is not done, but that we did what we could do that day. What's so inviting about theologies of a messianic era and now I'm moving to completion here. The theologies of a messianic era is the sense that we can and will live in a redeemed world. Like what's so, in, what's so inviting about that, right? Like, and ask yourself, do you find any comfort or solace in the idea of a redeemed world? Or is that so far-fetched? Here's what Rev. Cook writes. The holiness that is in nature is the holiness of the land of Israel, while the Shekhinah, that descended into exile with the people, Israel has the capability of preserving holiness, even in opposition to what is natural. But holiness battling against nature is not holiness. That is whole. It needs to be absorbed into its highest essence in, in supernal holiness, which is the very holiness of nature herself, which is the foundation of preparing the world in its entirety. Tikkun olam kulo and its complete rapture, and then the holy in the exile will be joined to the holy of the land. Then war will stop completely. The attribute of judgment will be enraptured, and all will incline, incline toward loving kindness. On Shabbat, friends, we can dream of that redeemed world where our work is complete. In the meantime, we will need to engage in our own makebe patish, to continue to work each day tirelessly to build a redeemed world. To do so, we will need to pause, rest, recharge, and reflect on what work we're doing. Shabbat can give us a temporary sense of completion, an inkling of what it could feel like to see the work as finished. After Shabbat, we are reminded of just how broken the world is and how incomplete the dream of completion is. Shabbat gives us a, us a respite, allowing us to dream of that final hammer blow. Okay, friends, I would love to, uh, let's go to gallery mode. There we are. Great. I would love to hear from you on your thoughts. Rabbi Shmuley, you brought up the, the topic earlier of CU. Um, 
And I, I like to think that after 39 weeks of, of classes and learning that this would constitute in its own way a CU. What do you see uh, from this class and, and from this whole experience to be, uh, how do you want to experience, uh, like celebrate a CU in this, in this context? Do you have your own like standard way that you do it, whether it's this class, it's, uh, you know, setting the Talmud or if it's, or is it customized based on the- uh, oh, I love that. I customized love that. based on the type of learning that was uh, accomplished. Mm, mm, I love that. Before I say something about that, I just want to note what, I, oh, okay, not the, that, that message was sent to me privately. Okay, the, um, to the person who sent me that note privately, I just want to uh, offer my condolences. Um, since I see that wasn't, that wasn't sent out publicly. Um, my condolences on your loss. Um, I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, happy to talk more after too. Um, so, um, Eric, um, thank you for that, that question. So what Eric is referring to, if you're not familiar, is called a siyum. I'll write it over there in, uh, in English spelling, siyum. Um, is a siyum is a little party. Party is a little bit of an overstatement. A little bit of a commemoration of the completion of Jewish learning. You finish Tanakh, you finish the Talmud, or you finish a tractate of the Talmud. And, uh, and it is a great invitation for us to do this next week, especially those of you who have joined most of our 39, to have a little siyum together um, uh, to celebrate the completion of, that, of this learning chapter. And yes, th this is like uh, a birthday. This is like a graduation. This is like an anniversary, like a yard site, a way to celebrate the completion. Actually, this is a week where many Jews have a siyum. You know why? Uh, you may have heard that some people love to, to eat meat. And yet um, there, is a, uh, there is an idea about not eating, uh, uh, eating, eating meat before Pesach um, for, for firstborns. Well, not just eating meat, re really eating at all. The, the, there's, there's a fast of the firstborns before Passover, if you recall, because the firstborn uh, males were going to be killed uh, in Egypt. Um, and so there's a fast of the firstborns. But if you have a seum, you have a reason to celebrate and thus you can eat. And so many people get around fast days by creating a seum. So there's a celebration. In any case, um, uh, yeah, yeah, the, the uh, meat part is a, is, is, a, is, a, is a different week. But um, but yeah, I think the seum often takes different form, you're right, of how we celebrate such completion. And, and Eric, you're giving me an opportunity to think about how we can uh, how we can think about this together uh, together that next week. Maybe since we're talking about Shabbat and rest, maybe we can all take a nice nap. Uh, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll go on Zoom. We'll turn on Zoom. Everyone will, will go lay down and we'll all take a nap together. <laughs> That'd be a little creepy, actually. <laughs> well, you, but would, you get the idea. Yeah, yeah Andrea, yeah. I would say that um, we just um, completed um, uh, uh, the tractate uh, Pesachim coincidentally right before Pesach. Yeah. And I participated in two stadiums on Sunday. One was with the Hadron. Um, there were 568 participants, mostly women, and four women taught. And then with the Talking Talmud, Siam was also mostly women, 68. There are two, two teachers are also women participated, and a few of us gave teaching. So, and we say the perihedron that we will return. Yep. So that's yep. kind of, you know, um, they, we, I hope we will return to Rav Shmuley's teaching in some form, mm -hmm. in any case. Thank you. Yeah, and, and just because just, just, this is the only group I'm dropping the information, I'll tell you that the first, I'll tell you the topic of the, of the first three, the first three debates in our in our forty debate series, 
uh, or for the 40 greatest debates in Jewish history. Uh, the first, here's the topics of the first three. Naturally, one of them is Hillel Vershamai, the great Talmudic masters, Hillel Vershamai. One of them is Rabbi Yitz Greenberg versus Rabbi Meir Kahana. Um, Mayor Kahana and Yitz Greenberg had a famous debate, um, which we will explore the, that debate that they had and unpack some of the ideologies that existed and still exist over there. Uh, and another will be gun rights and gun control. Um, you, you don't think about that. So, so th that gives us a taste how some of the debates will be specific figures and their actual debate, and some will be how a certain debate existed throughout the eras in different forms. And we'll look at how that evolves. So those are the first three of 40, if you'll join us for that. And uh, <coughs> yes, and Andrea's point is really wonderful. This idea of returning, that one of the ways that Jews <coughs> celebrate completion is by immediately returning to restarting. Um, uh, it, it, you know, and this is, this is most obvious in the idea, oh, <coughs> excuse me. This is least obvious in the bar bat mitzvah because what happens after the bar bat mitzvah? They're like, "See you later," right? <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> it's the last thing of returning. It's like the end. It's like the end. But in the um, at Simchat Torah, at the end of the Torah reading, we immediately start reading the Book of Genesis again. We finish Deuteronomy and we start Genesis again uh, right away, and so we see that right away. So we'll, I'm just going to grab a drink. One second. Sorry about that. I'm back. Someone else want to jump in? Um, go ahead, Eileen. Eileen, go ahead. Thanks, Andrea. Your comment about the universe, my construct is that the universe is constantly expanding. So there is no end. So in answer to your daughter's thinking, what lies beyond is unknown. There be dragons, but it's going to constantly be there. So in relation to a concept of godliness, God also would be expanding. Yeah, you know, um, yeah, so this is particularly powerful. Thank you, Eileen, in regards to process theology, uh, which really embraces that approach as opposed to like a medievalist approach, which understands um, th that there's no change, there's no evolution, there's no expansion. And um, this is interesting if you think of love. Some people like and some people don't like the idea of equating God with love. Like, what does it look mean to feel God or connect to God or uh, tap into the divinity in any form? This idea that that is very similar to an act of love. And I think it raises the question of, of uh, uh, how finite or infinite love is. Um, and I have, I have long believed, but I would love there to be a romantic pushback from someone here. I have long believed that love is finite. Um, and again, I, I, I would love, I would love a debate partner here. <laughs> not, I'm not going to debate. I would love to hear a, a response to it, it because it can't be. Oh, hold on, Eileen. Just before you share, so let me share my view, which is that I, 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 I largely, um, 
view love, uh, you know, influenced by Judaism, largely as behavioral. I'm, I, I'm very interested in the emotional dimension, but because I largely view it as behavioral, I do think that we will have to make um, decisions. And that's why I think that um, loving more people means loving people less um, to some degree, because if um, you have to share that time and those resources. And so I think that um, this is one of the ideas of why monotheism understands there can only be one God because you can't share love with multiple gods. You will love each God less if there's many gods. This is also with having one spouse. M many spouses, you're gonna share love. If you share love with many spouses, you will love that one spouse less. And in a similar way, that's why in our text, adultery is equated with idolatry, right? The idea of one God, one, one lover, <clears throat> is the idea that love can't be shared. Now, this is why, why siblings are so jealous of each other and their parental love right? This is not just siblings as children, siblings as adults, like I see, especially at deathbeds of parents, the types of conflicts that emerge. They loved you more. They loved this. You got this. I got that, right? And an un unfinished business of who was loved more. We see this in the, t in the Bible, in the Torah all the time. This idea of uh, sibling rivalries in regards to love. This is the whole Joseph story, right? Joseph was loved the most, and all the conflict that emerges there. And so I continue to kind of believe that love is a cherished resource um, and it, it is finite. Now, what's miraculous about God is that God can maybe love infinitely, but as human beings, so Eileen, let's hear your counter argument. Um, I think human beings can love infinitely. They can love God infinitely without uh, an end without a boundary, without a limit, just as a mother, I love my children. I do not set a boundary on that love. I do not say, I love you 50% and I love you 50%. Uh-uh, it's 100%. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you very much, yep. Okay, someone else wanna jump in on this or something else? Surely, yeah. do you, yes. yeah, do, do you mean that like a human being has only so much love to give? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't think so. I mean, just, okay, it's still silly to talk about my cats, but you know, my, my, my last cat, I, I, I loved him so much. I couldn't imagine loving another cat as much as I loved him. Um, but I have another cat. She's actually not the easiest cat to live with but I love her more and more each day. And I think love wanes, you know? I mean, I was married, I was divorced. I can't say I had any love left for my husband by the end. Um, I think we love different people differently, but you know, for some it's finite. Like, you know, I love my mom so much. I love my grandparents so much that, you know, there was no more love because that was the limit. But I think as human beings, I think we have an infinite amount of love to give. And, you know, you probably see it with your children. And as each new child comes, it's 100% love for each one. Yeah. Thank That's you. Thank I you, Lauren. It. No, I hear that point. And, and, I, and, and I would love to get there. I think the way I kind of imagine it is um, there, imagine like a cloud. There's like a love cloud above us. And we can tap into that love cloud and participate in the experience of infinite love,
But when we're not tapped into it, we're just kind of in our other our regular zone. We're living in a in a more limited, finite, realistic kind of concrete existence, and we become self-concerned. We do a lot of things for the self that are not other conscious. We are limiting our our, our love because we wish to survive. We wish to have pleasure. We wish to take care of ourselves. And that's okay. That's, that makes us humans. To live, in my view, to, to live with infinite love would make us God. We would be so other-focused, so full of other consciousness that we didn't need self-concern and self, self-care. And so I think we can have miraculous divine moments where we participate in infinite love. But I have to say to my kids, I have to limit my love of you because I need to go to work now. If I love you infinitely, I won't leave you. I'm going to be with you always. I'm going to take care of your every need, but I need to go to work. And so I need to, it doesn't mean in my heart, I don't love, I love them less, but I need to kind of not think about you right now because I have other things in my life I need to do. And my love is going to be focused somewhere else. And then it's going to come back to you. But Lauren, I hear what you're saying and I want to get there. Someone else was about to jump in. Yes, Nona. I would say that, that um, you are, um, that For me, what you're talking about is more my time or my energy, but my love is always there. The love is there whether I am as the vessel, physical vessel, have the capacity to, you know, talk about it, deal with it, find it right that moment. But the love is still there. And I think so often if you think about people who were in the camps or in refugee situations or any kind of mass situation where lots of strangers are in contact in dire straits with humans, with other humans who are trying to help them. And what people remember is the people who were kind and who loved them and they gave them a kind, I think that there is a capacity for respecting the other that, you know, that Salam Elohim, the idea, and and I think it's, it's something to try to attain. If you're gonna think about God as love, what you're thinking about is you're trying to be as full of the capacity to respect and appreciate and support other people as you, this ideal sense of an all loving God would be. And it's, and we're, you know, we're frail. We don't make that happen every time, but when you put yourself in a space of mindfulness and you stop and you look around and you try to be with in present with other people, those people who can do that. um, And you can do that. I've seen you do that. You, you have that capacity to be a kind of a spirit that people just um, recognize an awesomeness in because they see the love that you have that you give to so many in so many ways. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I don't think it, I think we have the capacity to find more of it in ourselves. You're in a space of your life with so many demands on you. You have so, you have lots of small people who need you endlessly and that takes so, so much um, time and energy. But the love is still there. Your just capacity to, to find it in yourself might be limited at times. Thank you, Nona. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And I, I do, uh, I, you know, I, there, there's a lot to say there. But just the, the one thing I'll say uh, slightly tangentially to your, your beautiful remarks is um, the tragedy of those who can't love. Um, and there's, and for some that happens through woundedness over, over life that they really close their heart, um, uh, to the ability to love or receive love. But tragically as a foster parent, I see it with very young children also that children who very early on in life, uh, were never shown love or taught or taught how to love, um, can, um, uh, 
oftentimes not be able to receive it at all. It's one of those things that we don't have we don't we don't uh, have listed, you know, within the psychological within the psychological disorder camp. You know, you're not going to find it listed in the book like we will like, uh, you know, fetal alcohol syndrome or something like this, or the inability to connect, you know, um, but, uh, but this capacity to receive love, and, you know, and here's, here's another way to think of it. Imagine if you had a parent as a child, you were fortunate that they pour like buckets full of love into you. Like, I'm just using a physical image, buckets full of love into you each day. And then when they were gone, you never met a person in your life who was able to pour buckets full. You met a spouse and they were pouring a Dixie cup into you or a friend. And you're like, whoa, that's all you got to give me? Like just the Dixie cup? Like I used to get a, I used to get a bucket full. Now imagine the opposite. Imagine you're, you had a parent who only poured a Dixie cup full of love into you. And now someone wants to pour a bucket full of love into you. You can't receive it because all you have to receive it is that Dixie cup. And someone pours the bucket and it just overflows. It can't be received. And so... Um, it, it, those pose two different dilemmas. This is one of the challenges of why, how parental love uh, can can um, be challenging for us in both directions. The loss of a, of a parental love, and we can feel wounded by never again receiving that feeling, kind of uh, feeling feeling uh, abandoned. King David writes about this in the Psalms, about how we uh, we inevitably feel abandonment from our parents because because we stop receiving that that love. And the opposite, where because we didn't receive it early on, we can never we can never uh, receive it. And that's why Freud was right in this respect. How connected our ability to have romantic love is with our parental love. Those connections are very very um, are very very deep. Um, Anyways, um, so anyways, that, that was one thought just about, about uh, foster parents. But, but friends, I do want to give us this experiment of tapping into, may, some of you have already argued that you believe you, lo you love infinitely, like nothing could change that or limit that. And that's really powerful and beautiful. And if you're like me and you, you see some limitations there, you're yearning for more, maybe we can experiment with tapping into that infinite emotional experience uh, at times, if not always, if not always. Uh, yes, attachment or bonding disorders. Exactly, Nona. Yeah, thank you. Okay, someone else. Who else wants to weigh in here? Well, I, could I? I'd like to bring it back yes, to um, the uh, completion of an act. I've been thinking a lot about the two. I'll be uh, attending and helping to lead two Passover seders. And you know, mm. the feeling this year is so different than last year. Last year, we were in the plague. We didn't see a way out of it at that point. And a lot of our satyrs just spontaneously were tied up with that and trying to get some solace of the old story. This year, we're relating to Exodus in a different way, but we know that in fact, once we left, that wasn't the end of it. All of a sudden we're ended up in the wilderness and there's no leaks and we're complaining and it's difficult. And so there's a completion, but it keeps on going. And so this year, even looking ahead that, you know, we're getting the vaccine and there's maybe uh, some release and relief from this plague, we know now that it can happen again and it most probably will. And um, finding um, some um, um, inspiration from the story that we know keeps on going is really challenging in a way. It's, it's really complicated, much more than I remember how simplistic it is. We suffered, you know, uh, we, we negotiated, we got out and there we were, we made it through the sea, hallelujah. 
Not that there isn't a place for Alleluia, but it's complicated this year. Yes, amazing. Totally agree. Totally agree. Thank you for that. Someone else? Thank you, Andrea. Don't be shy. If we haven't heard from you yet, feel free to unmute yourself. I'd love to hear from you. Rabbi, I was thinking there's a different kind of love. We are talk, you're talking about one love and you try to yes. compare that uh, or fit it all into one love, but you have different kinds of loves. For children, a love includes also a sense of helping or they're being more helpless than an adult, so you love them differently. Um, you might help, same thing with an elderly person. Uh, with a strength, you know, this morning I had a situation where I spoke to a niece who I haven't talked to in years and she's, uh, and at the end of the conversation, I said, I love you. And, and when I would sit down and think about who I love, um, uh, she would not have come to my mind. She, she's my husband's niece, so she's not my niece, so to speak. But uh, so, um, uh, and, and then she said, oh, I love you too, Auntie Carol. So. For that moment, I, I really loved her because she called to see how we were doing. Mm. So love is just, there's not one love. There's mm. not one love, one kind yeah. of love. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think that's, um, you know, it's, you know, just to go back to something we shared earlier, that in the Torah, it talks about three loves, um, about love for God, love for stranger, and love for your fellow. Those are the three primary kind of repeat. But C.S. Lewis writes about four loves, about four loves, a love for a friend being very different than the love for a child and love for, you know, for, for, uh, for, for, for God or for a spouse or whatever the case is. And I think there's actually dozens and dozens of kinds. And um, uh, imagine a, mo uh, a, a love moment. We think of you know, and, and here it's sort of interesting that we often, we think of love as long-term commitment, but think about, think about a short-term love that would be valuable. A stranger, imagine going back to my, going back to my friend who I, to, who I told, I said, shared at the beginning, emailed me last night, you know, if, if I hear of anyone dying, how he wants to sit with them, if they're dying alone. And imagine just meeting a stranger in their last two minutes of life, and then saying, can I take your hand? And imagine the love of that moment, like you've never met this person, they've never met you, but you're going to be with them, accompanying them out of this world. You know, like, like, I can't think of a love deeper than that, of like sharing that moment. Now imagine it's not a stranger, someone that you have a prior relationship with, how much deeper is that? Um, and so, uh, and and again, this is chesed shel emet. This is the, the the deepest kindness because it's not based on reciprocity. Love based on reciprocity is a questionable love. I mean, it's, at least it's a different category of love. You love in order that they love you back or, or you give so they give to you. But a love where there can be no return can be so profound. And so friends, I, uh, I, I uh, give us this blessing. It's, it's interesting that at Passover, we read uh, Shir Hashirim, Song of Songs. Um, because this is the this is a love song that we read as the as the um, as the special reading for this holiday, and I I I give us this blessing that we can learn how to love more fully, yeah. and learn how to receive love more fully, in all different facets, in all different facets with strangers, with friends, with family, with um, 
people we don't love yet, people we love already. And, um, and whatever that infinite love experiences is, if you feel you already have it or if it's something you're yearning for, that we can experiment with that and grow with that. And, um, and, and never check it at the door that wherever we go, yeah, transactional love versus con- unconditional love, wherever we go, we carry it with us. We channel it. We channel it, right? As the Kabbalah says, even in places of gavura, places of strength or conflict or courage, you always still bring your chesed. You always still bring your love alongside that, even in those hardest things. I wish everyone a Chag Sameach. I'm so glad that we will have the 39th Malacha next week in the middle of Chol in the middle of Pesach together. Wishing everyone a beautiful day full of love. Thanks so much. Chag Sameach, everyone. Chag Sameach. Chag Sameach. Chag Sameach.